So today, we are answering the question, why did he die for you and I? Throughout the last 2,000 years, the world has consistently attempted to get the church to mission drift, to get the church to be distracted, to look at another part of psychology, philosophy, human reasoning, instead of the actual biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. So how does the enemy cause the church to lose the gospel? And as we study through church history, we see the gospel being lost over and over again by certain people. Yet, throughout time, there was always a remnant. There was always a burning lamp somewhere. So the question is, how does the enemy cause the church to lose the gospel? Well, simple. By offering the body of Christ the option of an alternative gospel. A gospel that sounds almost like the gospel of the Bible, but it's not quite the same. And this is the reason for discernment. Discernment isn't knowing, or discernment is knowing, this is Charles Spurgeon, he says, the difference between being right from being almost right. <laughs> That's discernment. And so what the world does, and what the enemy does, is he brings you a gospel that sounds almost like the one from the Bible. The Apostle Paul calls this a different gospel, Galatians 1 verse 6 through 9. He says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So it is a distorted version of the same. That is what a false gospel looks like. He says, verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, he is to be cursed, as we have said before. So I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, he is to be cursed. Now to discover the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to ask the question that goes straight to the heart of the, of the work of Christ, which is, why did He come to die for us? If we get that question wrong, if we get the question of why Jesus, why Jesus, if we get that question wrong, then we have lost the very purpose of why He came, why He died, why He rose. So we have to ask the question, why? Why did He die? Why did He die? So you may know why you are here today. So you may know why you have hope today. You will see as the world continues barreling down the road toward full-blown paganism, a major goal would have to be to change the very reason Jesus came to die, to change the very purpose of His death. The moment you take the purpose of something away, guess what? It loses all the value it had. No more value. Bought myself a tractor mower. If that thing stops mowing, what's the value in a mower that doesn't mow? What's the value of a car that doesn't drive? Nothing. If you take the purpose out of something, it loses its value. You can't sell a car that doesn't drive. You can't sell a lawnmower that doesn't mow. You can't sell an airplane that doesn't fly. 
a boat that doesn't float. If you take the purpose out of something, it loses its value completely. Anything that loses its purpose loses its value. And the value of anything is therefore its purpose. And the question we are asking today is what is the purpose of Jesus coming and dying on the cross for you and I? You see, the value of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection is wrapped around that very purpose. And if you go throughout the history of Christianity, you'll find that that is the very thing. Everybody always goes, uh, all, uh, uh, I guess, the enemy, the thief, comes and he keeps on wanting to change that very issue right there, the purpose of Jesus. Because if you can redefine the purpose, you've lost the gospel. So throughout time, the world has worked very hard at changing just that. The world is currently selling you Gospels from the very same Bible that you hold in your lap. The world is selling you Gospels from there that is contrary to the very Gospel of Jesus Christ. How do they do it? By altering the purpose of it. The world is currently selling you a Gospel that saves people from hardships. When Tina and I and the kids were on vacation last year, the year before, we're driving uh, up to Eagle River in Wisconsin. And on the way there, there are these billboards that somebody paid for. And the billboard is a picture of a man sitting behind a desk with his hands in his hair. And he's overwhelmed, as you can see, all the bills are stacking up next to him, right? And it says on this billboard, it reads something with the lines of, are you overwhelmed? Are you frustrated? Have you come to the end of your rope? Jesus is the answer. Are you frustrated? Jesus is the answer. Jesus didn't come to unfrustrate us. From life. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if that is the gospel, you have to ask yourself this question. Did the 11 apostles who were all martyred to death, did they believe that? Did they believe that Jesus came and died on the cross so they can no longer be frustrated? Of course not. How about the early church fathers who were martyred to death, fed to, to the animals in the Colosseum, all the reformers who were persecuted by Bloody Mary, hundreds of them just murdered? Did they believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ was that Jesus died so that they can have a more comfortable life? I, I bet not. There's a prominent minister in, in, in America today who constantly preaches the idea that Jesus died so that you can have favor. But here's the thing, not favor with God to the point where God will favor you and pour His mercy, His grace out upon you, give you a new heart so that you can be a new creature which would love Him, serve Him, and give themselves to Him. No, not that kind of favor. No, favor with your boss. That's the favor they believe Jesus died for. Favor with your bank manager. Favor with a clerk at the DMV. That's what I want, Jesus. <laughs> favor with your in-laws, yep. <laughs> favor with the person you're trying to date. I mean, Lord Jesus, give me favor next time. I call her number. Even though Jesus said, because they've the world has hated me, the world will hate you. No, that doesn't... That's not a scripture these guys look at. The world's supposed to love me because Jesus died on the cross. I'm supposed to have favor everywhere I go. It's the gospel they're selling you today. Then, thirdly, you have 
Word of Faith ministers who are selling the gospel that teaches the curse that fell upon the earth because of Adam's sin. The effects of this curse is that now man will work at the, with the sweat of his brow, he will make a living. Women will go give birth and labor in pain and agony. But Jesus came to remove that curse. So now, you no longer have to work hard and earn a living by the sweat of your brow. God is making a way for you outside of work. And woman, you cannot go give birth without any pain. I kid you not. I actually listened to that sermon not too long ago. I was like, how does this work? Because it doesn't seem true for absolutely anybody. It, didn't seem, it wasn't true for the apostles. It has never been true. How do they get there? That the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we can claim freedom, freedom from having to work and freedom from having to have any pain. Because they misinterpret the word freedom. Now, you guys look like you've never heard that message. <laughs> Search out Copeland, you'll find it. Yet another group preaches that the gospel saves people from poverty. That's why Jesus died. So I don't have to be poor anymore. Jesus died on the cross so poverty can be eliminated in the lives of those who only believe, only believe. Now, even though Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always, that doesn't, that's nothing to them. Because Jesus wants everybody financially wealthy. Everybody. Then there's the gospel that's been sold, became popular not too long ago, claiming that Jesus died so you can be free, which is true, depending on how you determine freedom. If you determine it freedom from sin and the consequences of sin, which is death and separation from God, versus freedom from responsibility, freedom from accountability. <laughs> but they preach this gospel of freedom, and they claim because Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The only problem is that they interpret that freedom, freedom from moral standards. Freedom from having to serve God with their lives. I remember there was a time, and I'm referring to about five to seven years ago, where if I had to say anything in our church about, like, you know, God really wants you, you know, God really wants you to serve Him. I mean, there needs to be some kind of fruits to this tree, right? And they go like, ah, I'm not going to get into all of that legalism. Don't put legalism on me. I'm free. Free. <laughs> I'm like, well, you've got to read your book. I don't have to do anything. I'm free. I kid you not. Completely free. They completely missed the goal of freedom. Freedom was from you being a slave to sin, sin causing you to violate all of God's standards, commands, and desires for you. This sinful creature that's a slave to that sin can't get free from that sin that causes them to be an enemy of God. They got, this creature got freed from his slavery to sin and he became a new creation that is now free from the sin that ruled him and he's now free to serve God in the way that God made him to serve him. He is now free to love God. He is now free to live righteously. He now has a desire for the things of God. Whereas when he was a slave to sin, his desire was only for darkness. He loved darkness. He hated the light. But when he became free from that slavery, 
and he was born again. He turned into a new creature. He was regenerated. He's now a new creation. Hmm. He's now free to do what he was made to do. The purpose of his life came back to him, and that is to glorify God with the life that he has. But not these guys. No, they, they believe that when Jesus came to save them, Jesus came to save them from all kind of standards that they needed to live up to, or all kinds of morality. I'm free to not have to be moral. I'm free to not have to serve God. I'm free from having to serve Him. And that's how they interpret it. Hypergrace will do that to anyone. Antinomianism. Antinomianism is the anti-law. People who are anti-the law. Like, throw away, throw away the Old Testament. We don't need the Ten Commandments. Really? Are you married and you're telling your husband we don't need the Ten Commandments? It actually tells him not to commit adultery. <laughs> oh, okay, well, we'll keep that one. <laughs> We keep that one. <laughs> one of the anti-gospel cults that's resurfacing today is that Jesus died so every person can have equal outcomes. A form of liberation theology, a form of a political gospel or a Marxist gospel. They claim that the gospel, do, uh, you know, the gospel that doesn't fight for equal outcomes is not a true gospel at all. This is why Jesus came. I just wonder about those preachers. This is actually funny. The gospel is about, about spreading the wealth and making everybody equal. Well, how is it that when Jesus does return and he finds these guys preaching equal outcomes for all, Jesus goes, okay, you go to heaven and you go to hell. How's that equal outcome? <laughs> So the list of perverted gospels and the perverted versions of the gospel are endless. I mean, we can go on and on and on. In Bible school, we start with Gnosticism, which is the secret knowledge, and we learn about Marcionism, which is the unhooking of the Old Testament. And then we learn about Arianism, which is the fact that Jesus isn't quite God because He was created, and God wasn't created. Therefore, Jesus is lesser than God. We learn about uh, uh, Pelagianism, that basically is humanism uh, dressed in scriptures, and then semi-Pelagianism, which is a lighter version of the same, and um, Romanism, and we walk through all of how the gospel's been lost over and over and over and over again, and it hasn't been kept pure. Think about this for a second. The Apostle Paul made such a big deal about one issue. You know what that issue is? That Peter told people that they needed to get circumcised. They need to get it's still a healthy thing to do, but the moment you add that to the gospel, Paul goes, cursed be that. We cannot add anything to the gospel. We cannot take anything away from the gospel. You cannot add anything to Christ's position. You cannot take anything away. The moment you do, you touch Christ's office or his message, the moment you touch it, adding something or taking, from it, taking away from it, Paul goes accursed. You can't even add circumcision. That's why, folks, you can't add baptism and say, I'm saved because I got baptized. You can't do that. You got baptized because you're saved. You don't get saved because you received communion. You received communion because you got saved. 
right? You don't come and praise God here in order to be saved. You praise God because you're saved. Amen? God saves you, and now all these things in life follows. Why do you give to God? To earn His favor? In what way? You can't do that. What about the person who has nothing to give? No. We give. We worship. We pray. We study. We live for God. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. And everyone... who has been classed as heretical and throughout history has been because they touched the office of Christ or the message of Christ. However, before we establish the reason Christ came to die, we would be very well served to outline the things Jesus did not come to die for. I'll just give you four purposes Jesus did not have in mind when He hung on that cross. The first is Jesus did not die to establish world peace <laughs> this is actually really funny. I'm just trying to figure it out. At what point did Jesus succeed? Has he ever succeeded? <laughs> no. If that was the reason for him dying. So don't let them sell you this idea that, you know, peace is what matters. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a woman or set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So to believe that Jesus came to die so that humanity could experience world peace is a totally mis misinterpreted gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the one world would, of course, drive that message home. And you are no Christian if you don't stand for unity. The Bible really says you are no Christian if you believe there's such a thing as unity between light and darkness. There isn't. The second purpose Jesus did not come to die for is He did not die to save the Western world from crumbling. Matthew 18, 36 says, my kingdom, Jesus speaking, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Here I just want to remind you that you are first a Christian before you are an American. You are, you are an ambassador of heaven. That's what you are here for representing the kingdom of God. You are first. I am first a Christian before I'm at Jacob's. My family are those who do the will of the Father. And more and more as we see the world barreling down to paganism, people will start um, gravitating towards their church families because these are your real brothers and sisters. You've met somebody on the airplane you've never met before. You meet them for the first time, and you find out that they're born-again Christian. And my goodness, it's almost like, hey, brother! <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like you've known them forever, isn't it? And then you go to Thanksgiving parties, and you're like, man, I have nothing in common with this blood family of mine. Nothing. But more and more so, you'll see that to be true. 
That's why God has put you into a family of believers because that common ground is the common ground that matters. You are first a Christian, an ambassador of heaven long before you become an ambassador of your own family or uh, an American. You are first a Christian before you were anything. You're first a Christian before you're a business owner. You're first a Christian before you're a teacher at school. You can't just teach everything they tell you to teach because you're first a Christian, remember? The time's coming where teachers are, have to walk out and say, I'm simply not doing this. And if you're working for somebody, you're simply not, not cheating your boss. Why? Because you're first a Christian. So it doesn't matter what nationality you are, what generation you're from, what your gender is, what your income is or is not. You're first a Christian, and that's why we can all sit around at the same table. The third reason Jesus did not come, He did not come to die for capitalism or communism. People just drum that issue every time, every four years, they drum that whole, that whole issue. Jesus, you know, they, they shared all things in common. Yes, they did. Was it a command? No. If you want to go, you first. That's why I, I love to, I speak to the TV all the time. I'm like, all right, you want, you want us to share everything? You first, go ahead. You've got three mansions, go ahead. I'll wait for you. Stop destroying the planet. Okay, well then, sell your plane. You first. Because <laughs> that's my next point. Jesus did not die to save the whales. He did not die to save the ozone layer. He did not die to save the planet. You all saw the movie that came out of Hollywood with Russell Crowe, Noah. He played Noah and they attempted to portray the reason God drowned the entire world at the time of the great flood was because they were morally sinful and this moral sin of theirs was that they were destroying the earth. So there are all those reasons why they... Jesus did not come to die. He did not pay for the sins of humanity against the whales. No, He came to pay for the sins of humanity against God. So let's consider the reasons why Jesus came to die. Because this is in essence what we ought to do every single time we receive communion. We have to put Him in remembrance. Number one, Jesus, had, Jesus gave His life on the cross to absorb the wrath of God against my sin. Absorbing the wrath of God against my sin and your sins individually. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins in order that we, to explain the staggering, powerful Scripture, we have to understand a few things. First, we have to understand why our sin deserves such a brutal response from God. Somebody goes, come on, what kind of God are you serving? All she did was bit into an apple, which really was a fruit. 
I don't know where they came with the idea there was an apple. How come must she go to hell forever because she took a bite of the fruit? I mean, seriously, and this is, this is humanity's problem today, is like, I'm not really that bad. He should let me in. I, I'm really not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. If you look at the whole scope of my life, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. If you compare me to everybody else, I'm actually doing pretty staggering. <laughs> he should let me in. But it's because we don't understand the answer to this question. Why does my few handful of sins, why do they deserve eternal hell and death and separation from God? And the answer to that question is because of who we sinned against. Because of who we sinned against. If you have, and I give this same example over just so that it can stick, if you have a basketball game between you and a bunch of friends in your neighborhood. Everybody gets together down in the park and they're playing basketball. And these two guys that grew up together, they're in high school now, they're playing. Now they're in college and they're playing together. And this one guy always starts playing rugby instead of basketball, right? You go like, wait a minute, this is basketball, not rugby. Stop it, you know, you, you're tackling me. And the next time he tackles you, go like, you know what, you know what, next time you try that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punch you in the face. That's what I'm going to do. And the third friend goes, okay, simmer down, calm down, and guys, let's keep playing. It's just a game. Now, that's a threat. I'm going to punch you in the face. That's a threat. Right? Can we agree on that? Yeah. Now, imagine for a moment the President of the United States, whoever he is, he walks into the room, and his entourage is there and everything. You walk up to him, and you repeat that, ex same, that exact same threat. I'm going to punch you in the face. Guess what will happen to you? You get, you get <laughs> locked up right there. <laughs> Same threat. What's the difference? What's the difference? It is the one you threatened. It's because of who you sinned against. Your sin, no matter how trivial, is not small. Why? Because it's against a perfectly holy God. It's too cold in here. You're welcome. I don't want you to lose that. I, I don't want you to lose that thought. The reason your sin is so very wicked. I only bit into an apple. I stole a paper clip. What's the big deal? The reason your sin is so wicked is because God is so perfectly holy. And your sin was against Him, not your boss whom you stole the paperclip from. Your sin is so wicked, not because, you know, you just disobeyed mom. No, your sin is wicked because it was before God that you disobeyed the one you were supposed to honor and obey. That's a wicked sin if it's against that perfectly holy God. And we think we sin against humans. No, we're sinning against God. Why? Because He's the one who told us how to treat the person that we're sinning against. We're supposed to love our enemies. And we don't because they don't deserve to be loved. 
God goes, wait a minute, you just sinned against me because I was the one who told you to do that and you disobeyed me. So this is why our sin is dealt with in such a severe way because of who it is against. And we have to understand, what is the wrath of God? People, people oftentimes talk about the wrath of God as like, man, he's, so, he's angry and violent, and God has got like temper, temper tra- tantrums, and, he, and he's got a bad temper. Well, that's not really what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is a divine response to human sin and disobedience against the divine. It is the divine's response. It is making that scale, balancing that scale, And because it is against a perfectly God, that scale, there's a lot to be balanced. (laughs) And that is the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God is a divine response to human sin and disobedience. And then we have to look at this verse when it says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is that big word, propitiation? What is the removal of that wrath against your sin? It is the removal of that justice coming your way. So let's read that sentence again. And this is is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. In other words, our substitute. Sent His Son, our substitute, to become that propitiation for our sins, that removing of God's wrath off of you because of you stealing that paper clip and you deserve eternal hell for it. That is who Jesus is. Why am I saying that? Because that is why He came. That is the purpose of Jesus coming and dying on a cross for you so that that wrath of God can be removed off of you. Number two, Jesus gave His life on a cross to become a ransom for many. In Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Not for all, but for many. That's what He came to do. This is why we receive communion. Because we think about how He removed that wrath from us. We think about how He came and He paid a price, a ransom, and purchased us. If we ask who received the ransom, the biblical answer would be God receives the ransom. Ephesians 5, 2 says, gave Himself up for us an offering to God. Hebrews 9, 14 says, Christ offered Himself without blemish to God. He paid the ransom to God. He purchased you and redeemed you in that way. Number three, Jesus gave His life on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness. Matthew 26, 28 says, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Family, if you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven. I want you to think about the worst possible thing you've ever done the worst thing you ever did your whole life. I want you to bring to remembrance what you did. And I want you to think about yourself without that 
to your record. And that is who God sees you as. That thing that pours shame on you. In Christ, it's gone. It's gone. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's what He came to do. And that's why it's so infuriating to think that they take the very death of Christ and then they put spin on it just for their own purposes, whether it be political or whatever reason. No, He came to remove the wrath of God off of your life, to purchase you and redeem you and pay for you. And then He forgives you completely so you can stand before God sinless, like Christ was sinless. This is how you stand before Him, perfectly sinless. This is Jesus' purpose. This is why He came. And that's what we remember when we receive communion. The fourth thing I want to bring to you, and there are many, but today we want to look at these. The fourth thing is He died on a cross to deliver us from this present evil age. When the Bible says, and He saved you, He saves you from many things. He saves you from yourself. He saves you from sin. He saves you from death. He saves you from the wrath of God. He saves you from hell. He saves you from the corruption in this world. Jesus prayed. He says, Pray this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. And then he says, where did I go with that? Lead us not into temptation. Thank you. He says, lead us not into temptation. What he's saying there, but deliver us from all evil. Now, he can't tempt us. We know that. But what Jesus is praying, because God doesn't tempt, what Jesus is praying is keep them from the world corrupting them. That's what he's praying. And here we see that Jesus gave his life to deliver us from this present evil. Galatians 1 verse 4 says, Who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present age. That he might rescue us from this present age. That's why as a shepherd of a church, I have to always encourage you, do not get tainted with the world. If you are being influenced, if you are being influenced in the negative by those you are with on a Friday night, why don't you give up that relationship? Why don't you stop going to that place? <laughs> if you are influencing them, this is different. This is different. If you are bringing them into the understanding of the gospel of grace, this is different. But if you are being a light, it's different. However, to be separate from and away from what is corrupting you is a very wise thing to do, isn't it? So when the Bible says that Christ gave Himself to deliver us from this present evil age, it does not mean that He will take us out of this world, but that He will deliver us from the power of the evil that is inside of this world, the corrupting effect of a fallen world. So giving yourself to sin is to give yourself to the very power of the evil in this world. Jesus came to save you from that sin that overpowers you. 
So yes, you ought to say, I'm free from this worldly influence because I'm in Christ. He died for me. So Christ died for us to absorb the wrath of God that resides on us. Christ died on that cross to become a ransom and He purchased and He paid for you and He, purchased, he bought you. He died on that cross in order for you to stand before God completely forgiven. He, he died on that cross in order to deliver you from this evil world and its corrupting effects upon your life. And number five, Jesus died upon that cross in order to reconcile you back to the Father. To reconcile you back to the Father. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Uh, that's, a, that's a statement right there that we haven't looked in too much and we should. Because this verse is mind-blowing. Christ's death reconciles us to God. That is to say, the cause of our alienation from God has been removed by Christ's death. But then it says, Christ's life saves us. Christ's life saves you. That's important to understand. And here's how we do understand that. That Jesus lived an obedient life so that His obedience can be imputed unto you. Think about this for a moment. Why didn't God send Jesus on day one? He came to earth. He showed up. He died. He was buried and resurrected three days later and went straight back up to God. Why didn't He just spend four days or so here on this earth in order to accomplish what He accomplished? Why was He born here and grew up here and only went to the ministry at age 30? Why did God make him live for 30 years before he actually came and did what God called him to do? Because God called him to do more than just die for us and rise for us. God called him to also live for us. Jesus lived a completely, perfectly holy life. He never sinned once. And he lived that perfectly holy life outside of sin for you. When we put Christ in remembrance, we put more than just His death in remembrance. We also put His burial in remembrance. We also put His resurrection in remembrance. We also put His great commission in remembrance. But we also put His whole entire 30 years of obedient life in remembrance. Because Jesus, that's not just His death, burial, and resurrection, but also His life was imputed unto you you stand before God not just forgiven, but you also stand before God as a perfectly obedient individual. I'm not standing before God as a forgiven rebel. I stand before God as Christ stands before God because His life was also imputed to you. Therefore, Jesus lived an obedient life so His obedience could be imputed to you. You, therefore, stand perfectly obedient before God with Christ's obedience. We conclude, therefore, that Jesus died on the cross so you could die with Him. Christ's death has been imputed to your account. You are dead to the old person. God no longer sees your old self because you have died to the old self. You stand before God now as a new creature. 
not as a, you know, when you take a card to the panel beaters, to the, you know, it's not a, it's not a fixed up version of the old self. No, it's a brand new creature. We conclude, therefore, that Jesus rose from the dead so that you could rise with him in glory. That is why the, the imagery of, and symbolism of baptism is so powerful. You stand before God, not dead in sin, but alive in righteousness, because that is what you were raised as out of the water. We conclude, therefore, that Jesus paid the full penalty for your sin, so you can be free from, this, from sin's guilt and from sin's consequences. Stand before God with no outstanding payments for your sin. You have zero sin debt before God. Jesus died and was separated from the Father on the account of your sin, so you can be reconciled back to the Father. You have been brought back to the Father. You stand before God as the lost son that has returned. And every time we receive communion, we celebrate what Jesus actually did for us. We celebrate the reality of our communion with God. We celebrate all that was imputed unto us, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We celebrate this oneness that we have with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, in the Son, with each other as a family, brothers and sisters. Therefore, in 1 Corinthians, as we get ready to receive communion, the Bible says, For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks. He broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This is, this, uh, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray.